Peace be with you. And welcome to The Word Unveiled, our continuing series of programs from St. Malachy Church in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Our program tonight will be about American Saints, Blesseds, Venerables, and Servants of God. This is number one in a series, and our subject is Francis Xavier Cabrini. Mother Francis Xavier Cabrini, we must pray without tiring for the salvation of mankind does not depend on material success, nor on sciences that cloud the intellect, nor neither does it depend on arms and human industries, but on Jesus alone. So as in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Fortify me with the grace of your Holy Spirit and give your peace to my soul that I may be free from all needless anxiety, solicitude, and worry. Help me to desire always that which is pleasing and acceptable to you so that your will may be my will. And that's a prayer, excuse me, <laughs> in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. This is a prayer uh, written by St. Francis Xavier Cabrini herself. Well, she was born under the name of Maria Francesca Cabrini on July 15, 1850, in Sant'Angelo Lodiano, which is in the Lombardy district of Italy near Milan. Her parents were Agostino and Stella Oldini Cabrini, and they were part of a very poor agrarian family, as were so many people in Italy in this time period. She was the tenth of 13 brothers and sisters, but only four lived to adulthood. She was born two months premature, which in 1850 was rarely survivable, but she did. However, she would suffer from poor health throughout her entire life. Her family will also endure extreme poverty, which was very common in Italy at this time period, and many, because of that, began to emigrate to other lands, and especially to the United States. Rosa, her older sister, effectively became the mother of the family upon the death of the children's mother, and she cares for her sister, Maddalena, who was born brain-damaged, and for Francesca and for their little brother, Giovanni. These four are the only ones that would survive to adulthood. Father Luigi Oldoni was a uncle, and he imparted uh, his sensibilities for others, that is his mercy and compassion uh, for others, to Francesca with, uh, with love and stories of the missionaries. So the idea of becoming a missionary was implanted in uh, uh, little Francesca's uh, heart at a very young age. At age six, she made paper boats and she launched them in the local stream, laden with violets. She was sending them on a loving mission to the people of the Far East. So, so this was her, her first thought about uh, being a missionary. And her life goal was to become a missionary and she based that on the life and enthusiasm of the life of St. Francis Xavier, a Jesuit and, uh, who lived in around six, uh, 1650. And ever since, uh, and then, then Italy was in a lot of turmoil. There was no Italy as we know it today. Uh, from the time of the Roman Empire, after the Roman Empire collapsed, Italy was always comprised of city-states, Rome, Florence, um, Venice, Naples. They were all independent states. Well, about the, in the middle of the 19th century, there began to be a political move to try to unify the peninsula from all these petty states. 
This began around 1830, about 20 years before Francesca was born, and continued until 1871, when the nation was finally unified uh, as one uh, political entity. But there was a lot of ongoing violence and, um, and assassinations and all kinds of turmoil uh, during this time period, which along with the poverty was another reason to drive people to emigrate, and especially to emigrate to, to America. Now, little Francesca, at age 13, was sent to attend a school operated by the Daughters of the Sacred Heart in nearby Aluna, Italy. And she, um, she was a very good student. So five years later, she graduates cum laude, and she's so good at, at her studies that the sisters grant her a teaching certificate and want her to stay with them and be a teacher. So, but she decides she wants to um, enter the relig religious life, and so she applies for admission to the Daughters of the Sacred Heart. But they reject her because they notice that she's very frail and she has health problems, and they just don't want to be um, the caretakers for her. They don't, want, they don't want to be stuck with having to take care of her the rest of her life, or so they believe. So then she attempts to join the religious order of the Canosian Sisters in uh, nearby Crema, but she's denied yet again. So she begins teaching at her old school, and she's a very good teacher, and she draws admiration from many for her skill, her patience, and the love that she expresses for the students. Now, Monsignor Serrati, he becomes aware of her, and he asks her to go to the House of Providence or orphanage, which he oversees, and reorganize it, because it's in a shambles. There are two religious sisters that are working there, Antonio Tondini, and uh, Teresa Calza, and they formed a community of two. Uh, they call themselves the House of Providence. Their mismanagement of the orphanage prompts Bishop Gelmini to assign a group of religious women known as P. Signore to help them. And these women are thwarted in every effort. The inept and arrogant Tondini and Calza chase their help away. It's their orphanage. They don't want any help. They want to run it their way, uh, but they're making a mess of it. So Monsignor Serrati implores the help of Francesca Cabrini, who is a teacher at this time, and she reluctantly consents to get involved. Well, she also has her hands tied by these two administrators in everything she tries to do, but eventually she recruits a group of women who save the orphanage and develop a common bond in the process. So this group ultimately calls themselves the Sisters of Providence, with Cabrini serving as their unofficial superior, beginning in September of 1877. And after a most unusual and rapid novitiate, Cabrini takes the name Sister Saveria Cabrini. Well, it was decided in 1880 to dissolve the House of Providence and to employ Sister Cabrini and her small group more effectively. Sister Cabrini shares her dreams of foreign missions with her sisters, and they together decide to, to take the name Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Not without controversy, however, because uh, religious sisters are not typically missionaries at this time period in, in the church. Uh, deacons and priests can certainly do that, but it's not usual that sisters without deacons or priests become missionaries. So. Within this new group, uh, they're approved by Rome, and she becomes Mother Francis Xavier Cabrini. And they open seven homes for foundlings, a free school, and a nursery. 
and then they also sell embroidery to raise funds for the next five years. And all of this attracts the attention of Bishop Scalabrini. He's the Bishop of Piacenza, and he is well aware of the problems experienced by Italian immigrants in the United States, of which there are many. And he begins forming groups of priests to go to New York, and he's in constant communication with Archbishop Corrigan of that city. As you might suspect, Corrigan is an Irish name. So the Archbishop of the city of New York is an Irish Catholic. Here's an Italian Catholic trying to look out for Italians there. And this is the period in the 19th century where a lot of churches in the United States become state churches. They're Italian-American, they're Irish-American, they're German-American. Uh, they, they, uh, there's not as much cooperation as one would hope between the different churches. So uh, Bishop Scalabrini then also shares his thoughts about sending priests to New York City, and he shares it with uh, uh, Pope Leo XIII, and he has a very uh, close connection with uh, Pope Leo XIII and speaks with him frequently. Well, Bishop Scalabrini and his work is immensely impressed with the character of Mother Cabrini. So he contacts Archbishop Corrigan of New York City and proposes that Mother Cabrini and her sisters could be of tremendous value. Mother Cabrini meets with Pope uh, Leo XIII and tells him of her dream of taking her sisters on mission to the Far East. So Bishop Scalabrini's got an idea of what she should do. She has a different idea of what she wants to do. But Pope Leo XIII's advice to her is to not go to the East, but to the West and help the Italian immigrants in the United States. And the Pope sees that as being the most urgent uh, issue for Italian Catholics. So in, in the United States, in 1884 in Baltimore, they conduct a third plenary council, and the bishops that meet, mostly from the eastern uh, seaboard of the United States, recognize severe issues facing Italian immigrants in all the cities on the East Coast. And those issues are that Generally, they are poorly catechized, especially the southern Italian immigrants who have come from uh, agrarian districts. They are in extreme poverty. They're unable to support a mission, so they're not really advancing in faith. And they cannot speak English, and they don't, they don't even attempt to try. Nobody's willing to teach them. And so they wind up with very unskilled, low-wage jobs. And at the same time, they are proselytized or... Uh, being um, talked to by Protestant Americans uh, about joining their churches. So they're, they're the target from a lot of directions. Well, Mother Cabrini takes up this commission to go to America, and so with her six sisters, she sets out uh, on a ship, and they arrive in New York City on March 31st, 1889. And these are the sisters that went with her. And if you look at their names and their ages, you see that the youngest is only 21 and the oldest is only 36. So it's a very uh, young group of women who set out for America. Now, the ironic thing about crossing the ocean is that Mother Cabrini was deathly afraid of water ever since she fell into that pond when she used to make those little paper boats and set them adrift. And so she had this unusual fear of the water. And so <laughs> And in her lifetime, she would cross the ocean 23 times. So what was Mother Cabrini's thoughts as she and her six sisters set out for New York? Did she think it was perhaps a step toward the Far East and her lifelong dream? 
Well, she wrote, I could die soon, very soon, because of the uncertainty of life and because of my poor health. So she was well aware of her limitations physically. God grant that before death overtakes me, I will hear and do your will. So she also very obediently surrenders to the will of God, and, and she's arriving in New York, and she will do the work that's set before her. Well, Archbishop Corrigan is quite surprised upon their arrival. Apparently, he wasn't really reading the letters that were being sent to him. And he says, I can't take care of you. I don't have any housing for you. I think you should go back to the boat, turn around, and go back to Italy. Well, that doesn't sit well with Mother Cabrini. She has absolutely no intention of giving up so easily. So she sweetly tells him that they will stay and make their own way if he will not help them. And as she's starting to leave the room, he relents and he says, okay, okay, I'll find accommodation for you. And he does. He finds a, a, another religious order, has space, and the six sisters, along with Mother Cabrini, go to live with them. And, uh, and the very next day, they go out into the streets of the uh, Italian community and announce their presence and, and begin to talk to the people both about faith and about how they can help them and what do they need. So they very quickly see that there's a need for a school because the children are not being educated because nobody in the school system speaks Italian, so they're just being ignored. So they set up a school for the younger children in the basement of St. Joachim uh, Church in the Italian section of the city. But it's difficult to get families to cooperate and send their children to the school because if a child is six or seven or eight years old, that's old enough to work. And so they wind up getting jobs in uh, unloading ships, uh, working in factories, working in warehouses, working in stores, wherever they can, they can uh, uh, find a job. The children are sent to work because everybody needs to contribute uh, money to the family income for them to get by, to just avoid starvation. Well, the sisters get some needed financial help from the Sisters of Charity with whom they're lodging. So that helps them, at least in the first uh, few months. And they are kind of thwarted from receiving financial aid from other sources. Nowhere in the Archdiocese of New York is there any money made available for them. Um, they're really still not welcome. So the sisters begin to collect pennies, nickels, and dimes from the Italian community on the street to support their work. Now, the work of Mother Cabrini and her sisters happens to attract the attention of a woman by the name of Countess Marie de Cesnula, and she has always wanted to open an orphanage, and so she talks to the sisters, and she proposes that she will find a house that's suitable for a convent for them and also an orphanage, and it will be in Manhattan. Her husband happens to be Count Luigi de Cesnola, and he is the first director of the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. And he has a quite lengthy list of potential donors, which he shares with Mother Cabrini. So Mother Cabrini, always taking advantage of every opportunity, uh, goes through that list and finds donors and starts to bring in some money to help uh, go forward with their mission. Well, the house that uh, the Countess got for them was basically two rooms in a, in a flat. The sisters lived in one, the orphanage was in the other, and it was way too small for their needs. So they found another uh, piece of property that was a little bit better, and this was a uh, formerly a Jesuit retreat center. You see it pictured here. It was located in, in the West Park District of New York City, and the price was very affordable. 
and there was a reason for that. There was no fresh water on the site. They had to water, take water by buckets from the Hudson River and carry it to the house. Uh, there was no city water system yet, at least not out that far. And so the the thing to do would be to dig a well, but they, they tried and nobody could find water on this site. But Mother Cabrini said to pray and search for water, and she pointed out an area and said, dig over there, and so they did, and guess what? They found a spring, they found a well, and so the sisters moved into the house, and it began to be their center and also uh, a new orphanage. Well, uh, so many young women were attracted to the, all this activity amongst the missionary sisters, young women who were already living in New York, and they came and they wanted to join. So the ranks of the missionary sisters of the Sacred Heart began to expand. In July of 1890, Mother Cabrini went back to Italy with the first North American postulants for uh, the novitiate in the, in the town of Codonia, and so her, her ranks were starting to grow. She returned to Rome for an audience with Pope Leo XIII when she was there, and he was fast becoming her good friend. She had done what he wanted her to do, and it was beginning to really work, work out and pay dividends. Well, a couple years later, uh, Mother Cabrini expanded the, uh, um, her mission, and she founded Columbus Hospital in New York City. It was 1892. That was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, and of course, Columbus was an Italian, so that's why it was named Columbus Hospital. So now the Italian immigrants, uh, they, were, they had uh, orphanages, they had daycare, they had uh, clinics, uh, and, uh, uh, and they had churches. Now they had a hospital, so they, and it was provided for them without cost, so they, their, their lifestyle is becoming um, better, they're becoming more elevated. So Mother Cabrini was now found herself in charge of orphanages, schools, catechisms, and now healthcare. In uh, in New York City, she also founded a high school, and later it would bear her name. And then she and her sisters went across the the river into New Jersey, and then eventually into Pennsylvania and other states, founding schools and orphanage wherever there was a need. People were writing to her and saying, we need this and we need that. Can you help us? And she would go, and she and her sisters would make it happen. Now, her sisters established 67 foundations in eight countries on three continents in Mother Cabrini's lifetime. These foundations seemed to appear from nothing in a whirlwind of activity. They were supported by the Missionary Sisters of Charity and through their pennies, nickels, and dimes that they collected. In an extraordinary demonstration of faith and with little or no help from others, she bought, furnished, staffed, and administered schools, hospital, existing hospital buildings, orphanages, and convents. And here's a list of what she did in the United States, starting in 1889 in New York, the first orphanage that she set up. But then you look down the list, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven facilities in New York but by 1899. And they're orphanages, schools, hospitals, another school, a dispensary, a pharmacy, uh, two more schools. Then in New Jersey, schools and orphanages. She went to Scranton, Pennsylvania and set up another school. She went to Chicago, Illinois, set up a school and a hospital. Then as far down as New Orleans and Louisiana, schools and, and orphanages, Denver, Colorado, 
schools and orphanages, all the way out to Seattle, Washington, another orphanage and another school, and even Los Angeles in 1905 set up an orphanage and a school. So Archbishop Quigley in 1903 in Chicago heard about this tiny woman who was transferring, transforming, I should say, life for Italians in New York. And so he invited her to Chicago. And she set up and established the Cabrini Medical Site on the near west side. And here's, here's an old rendering of what that facility looked like. But then she purchased an old hotel building in Lincoln Park, that's in the downtown area of Chicago, and she renovated portions, demolished others, and then expanded it to become Columbus Hospital Chicago. And here's a photo of what that looked like. But she wasn't only working in the United States, she was working throughout the world. So she was, she was working in Nicaragua, three facilities in Italy, another one in Panama, Argentina, France, Spain, four more in Italy, another one in Spain, four more in Argentina, two in England, two in Brazil, two more in Italy, and then uh, also in Paris, France, she set up an orphanage. And in 1915, at the height of the First World War, in Italy, France, and England, she set up temporary hospitals for the war wounded because the, the normal hospitals were just so overcrowded with, uh, with uh, patients. And here's some quotes that she had, has which expresses her character. She says, I will go anywhere and do anything in order to communicate the love of Jesus to those who do not know him or have forgotten him. I travel, work, suffer my weak health, meet a thousand difficulties, but all these are nothing, for this world is so small. To me, space is an imperceptible object, as I am accustomed to dwell in eternity. Prayer is powerful. It fills the earth with mercy. It makes the divine clemency pass from generation to generation. Right along the course of the centuries, wonderful works have been achieved through prayer. So Mother Cabrini encouraged all of her sisters, if they weren't already citizens of the United States, to become citizens. And she too became a naturalized citizen in 1909. Uh, that would have been 20 years after her first arrival in the country. And then at Christmas time in 1917, uh, mother was told, she was in Chicago, and she was told that there was not enough candy to fill the children's stockings because of sugar rationing for the war. Well, mother responded, what? No candy for the little ones? Christmas would not be Christmas. We'll provide the candy as usual, war or no war. So all during the following day, which was December 21st, she and her sisters wrapped Christmas presents and filled bags of candy for the children. And shortly before no noon on the next day, December 22nd, Mother Cabrini was found collapsed in a chair in her room, her clothes stained with blood. A priest was summoned who administered the anointing of the sick. And as she received the anointing, Mother turned and smiled upon her sisters and departed this life at age 67. Now Cardinal Mundelein of Chicago at that time said, when we contemplate this frail little woman in the short space of two score years, recruiting an army of 1,000 women under the banner of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, dedicated to a life of poverty and self-sacrifice, burning with love of their fellows, crossing the seas, penetrating into unknown lands, teaching them and their children by word and example to become, become good Christians and law-abiding citizens, 
befriending the poor, teaching the ignorant, washing the sick, all without hope of reward or recompense here below. Tell me, does not all this fulfill the concept of a noble woman? Now, after Mother Cabrini's death, many, of course, believe she was a living saint, but the canonization process got underway. And a little boy by the name of Peter Smith was an infant in Columbus Hospital in New York. And a nurse mistakenly put drops in his eyes that were 50% silver nitrate, not 1% as was prescribed. So the child was blinded. And the sisters pinned a relic of clothing from Mother Cabrini to the child's pillow and prayed all night long. In the morning, the baby could see perfectly well. And the healing was complete. So Peter Smith will attend the beatification of Mother Cabrini in Rome, which takes place, that his miracle was in 1921. Her beatification occurred in 1938. And in 1951, he's ordained a Catholic priest. So I'd say Mother Cabrini was working on him. And the second miracle, he had to have two miracles for beatification and two for canonization back in those times. So Sister Delfina Grazioli, who was one of her sisters and the missionary sisters, uh, she endured multiple stomach surgeries until the doctors told her there's nothing more they could do, prepare for death. So that evening, while she was lying in her bed expecting to die, she had a vision of Mother Cabrini who told her, get up and eat, I'm going to send you to work. So Sister Graziola recovered, and, uh, and she continued as a MSC sister for 40 years. And that, be, uh, that miracle happened in 1925. Well, in 1938, November 13th, 1938, she was uh, beatified in Rome. Uh, 50,000 people assembled at St. Peter's. Uh, Pope Pius XI presided. And so Mother Cabrini became Blessed Mother Cabrini in 1938. But the miracles weren't done yet. In 1939, a man by the name of uh, uh, Paolo Pezzini, he suffered from cystic sclerosis for 25 years. And without any warning or premonition, he lapsed into a coma, stricken with double pneumonia and kidney failure. His doctors reluctantly told the family that they held no hope for his recovery. So Pezzini's family prayed fervently to Mother Cabrini all through the night. And suddenly, Pezzini woke up, surprised to find so many of his family and friends at his bedside, and his cure was immediate and complete. So he will travel to Rome, and he will be in attendance uh, at, at the Vatican for Mother Cabrini's canonization. The second miracle for canonization occurred in 1939. And this was the Torre and he suffered for many years from tuberculosis in the bones of his right foot. And the wound was large and it was oozing. And his doctors told him that he would need to have his foot amputated. So Etor and all his family and friends implored Mother Cabrini with prayer. And his wound suddenly and miraculously and totally healed. And he was also present, present in Rome uh, for Mother Cabrini's canonization. So on July 7, 1946, the canonization mass for Mother Francis Xavier Cabrini was conducted by Pope Pius XII in St. Peter's Basilica. And all around the nation, the, the papers announced the news in Chicago, in New York, and all over. 
There were 50,000 people in attendance in Rome on that event, and 600 of the MSC sisters were also there. Now, in New York, at the same time, Cardinal Spellman celebrated Mass at the Mother Cabrini High School Chapel in commemoration of Mother Cabrini's canonization. And an estimated 40,000 people showed up. They could not all get inside of that little chapel, so they just surrounded the property. And you can see Cardinal Spellman walking by a police barricade, and the people are lined up behind it. In Chicago, at the same time, they had a, a, a commemorative mass for uh, the canonization of Mother Cabrini in Soldier Field, and 60,000 people showed up. And this is a photograph, so you can see that every seat is filled. Now, also in Chicago, a shrine was, was dedicated to the memory of, of uh, Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini, and that occurred in 1955. And it was constructed on the grounds of Columbus Hospital. It was actually in the in sort of a courtyard, and the hospital eventually was built all around the shrine. But it was a huge church. You can see it in this photograph here. Uh, and the room in which she died at Columbus Hospital in Chicago was preserved and made a part of that shrine. In 1950, Pope Pius XII declared Mother Frances Cabrini to be the patroness of immigrants, and she was then later uh, identified as the patroness of hospital administrators. So Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini was born on July 15, 1850 in Sant'Angelo, Ludiano, Italy, which was then part of the Austrian Empire. She died on December 22, 1917 in Chicago, Illinois at Columbus Hospital. She was beatified November 13, 1938 by Pope Pius XI, and she was canonized July 7, 1946 by Pope Pius XII. She is the first American saint first American citizen ever to be uh, made a saint. And her resting place is in the St. Francis Xavier Cabrini Shrine in Washington Heights, Upper Manhattan, New York. And this is the, the, where, where her uh, shrine in New York is. It's actually on the grounds of the high school that she first founded. And here's the interior of the shrine, and her body lies beneath the altar. And the walls behind the altar are mosaics of all the major events in her life, founding of all the missions all around the world. And, and the, the, uh, the windows are, reflect her image. And, and I should mention, she was only four foot nine. So she was a tiny little, little woman. Now in 2019, the city in New York launched a campaign which they called She Built New York City. And it was to honor women who had made an impact on the city. Well, people wrote in, put down, who did they think? What woman? Well, it turns out Mother Cabrini received the most votes from all the New Yorkers, and so they expected a monument would be built. However, the campaign was run by our secular government, and they didn't expect a, a Catholic saint to be named as the great hero. Uh, they thought it would be some political person. So they decided they would just forget about the vote, and they weren't going to build a, a statue to Mother Cabrini. But that drew outrage when people found out about that. So they petitioned then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and he uh, announced that a statue of Mother Cabrini would be built in Battery Park overlooking uh, New York Harbor to honor Mother Cabrini's work with immigrants. And the statue was unveiled on Columbus Day in October of 2020. And this is what the statue looks like. 
and it's Mother Cabrini with two children, and they're, they're riding in a paper boat like she made when she was a, a young child, which she thought would take her as a missionary around the world. Well, it wasn't a paper boat, but it was the grace of God that did take her around the world as a missionary. Now, another shrine that's been dedicated to her is in Golden, Colorado. When she, w- she went out there and she was visiting uh, workers in the mining camps, and, and when she uh, saw this hilltop, she decided to purchase it. And she was out there in 1902. And she decided it would be a great place for a summer camp for children. But guess what? There was no water. There was no well on this property. So it was just like West Park, uh, New York, when they had that first orphanage. So once again, Mother Cabrini says, why don't you dig over there? They dug over there, and yeah, you already guessed it. They found water. And this is what the, uh, the retreat house that was built there looks like today. And the Stations of the Cross on the hillside. It's a very beautiful place. Now, in Chicago, I'd mentioned that they had established a national shrine uh, for her, um, and Columbus Hospital was wrapped around it. This is what it looks like today. Columbus Hospital has been demolished, and this 55-story uh, luxury condominium sits on the property. Uh, this was It took uh, between the years 2003 and, and 2011 to construct that building and the grounds. Uh, and the shrine was rededicated in 2012. Here's what Columbus Hospital first looked like in the 1950s, and this is what's on the site now, this this uh, very large luxury condominium building. Now the interior of the shrine is beautiful. It's a four-square church. Uh, it has a, a domed roof area and pendentives. That's the, um, the area between the arches. And they, and they have uh, mosaic and um, oil paintings on the ceiling, and they depict all the major events from Mother Cabrini's life. And you can see more in this picture here. Now, um, the tamborini uh, pipe organ uh, was from the original shrine in 1955, and it was paid for by one single physician at Columbus Hospital who was so moved by Mother Cabrini's uh, uh, work that he wanted to contribute to the shrine and so he paid for this uh, wonderful pipe organ. Here's this, a view of the ceilings and on the ceilings you can see Mother Cabrini with children all around the world working with immigrants uh, establishing missions. Now I have a little testimony about this. Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini is very special to me. Um, before I retired I was a healthcare architect I planned and designed hospitals, and I went all over the world doing that. And one day, or one week, in the last week in August 1999, I was asked to go to Columbus Hospital, and they knew they wanted to demolish the hospital, so they wanted to relocate all the departments from Columbus Hospital to nearby St. Joseph Hospital. So they needed to understand what they were doing, what the volumes of service that was being uh, met was, and just how exactly we could we could do that. So I had a week-long series of meetings. It started on Monday morning, and I met the administrator of the hospital. Her name was Sister Teresa Peck. My last name is Peck. She kind of chuckled, and she pointed to the wall where she had several degrees, and her last name was spelled 
P-E-C-A-J-O-W-S-K-I, and went on and on and on. So she had, had shortened it. So she laughed, and she said, people are going to think I've sent a spy into the hospital to see what's happening. But then she told me that St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, the first American saint, had died in this hospital. And at that time, I said, oh, that's nice. Never heard of her. I had no idea who the first American saint was. I was what you would call a lukewarm Catholic at that time. So I began my meetings, and I would meet with the medical staff, the nursing staff, administrators, and I would walk through their departments, and I would understand what they were doing. And then I would go back and, and meet with them, and we'd discuss um, budget and, and volumes and everything else. And I would develop reports that would be used, used to direct the planning. Well, I did this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday morning, I'm getting kind of tired of this. And I thought I had walked through every step of this hospital. So it turned out my 11 o'clock meeting was canceled. And I had another meeting at 2 o'clock. After that, I could go home. So I tried to get the 2 o'clock meeting moved forward, and that didn't work. So I didn't want to keep writing. So I got up, and I left my notes, and I took a walk. And I happened to walk past the door, and it said shrine. And I thought, oh, that's right. There's supposed to be a shrine in here. I, I wonder what's there. I opened the door thinking I'm going to find a little prayer room with a Bible and maybe a, a picture of Mother Cabrini. When I opened it, I walked into that church. I had no idea it was there. It was totally surrounded by the hospital. Then off to the side, there was a sign that said shrine. And I walked in there, and I looked to my left, and I... And I looked at photos on the wall of Mother Cabrini all, all stages of her life. And when I came to the end of that, I, I was at this room that you see in the photograph. Well, it was the room she had died in. There was a short little bed. There, at, at that time, there was one of her habits was hanging on the wall. It looked like a child's dress. Um, it, it was just the room just exactly as it was when she had passed. And I, I knelt down at the kneeler and I said, saint that I've never heard of before, carry my prayer to the Lord. I'm not a bad man, but I could be a whole lot better. And then I thought I had a stroke because my head spun, the room was moving. I closed my eyes like a, like a afraid little child uh, and I didn't know what was going on. And I thought, did I insult God by saying I'm not a bad man? You know, did I make myself too good? What, what's happening? And it seemed like this went on for 10 minutes. It was probably 10 seconds. Uh, I opened one eye and then the other, and there was nobody there. I thought I'd see angels or demons or something, and there was nothing there. And I got up slowly, and I started to walk back out of the room, and then a screechy voice said, Good morning, sir! <laughs> and it was an old lady. She's sitting at a, at a little counter selling holy cards and and rosaries and books about Mother Cabrini. And I hadn't seen her because I'd been looking the other direction. I jumped out of my skin. I went over and I said, ah, give me that book and that book. I bought two books. I went back to my meeting room. I stuck them in my computer case. And at the end of the day, after my meetings were all done, I went to the airport, got on the plane. It's a short trip from Chicago to Detroit. So I pulled out one book and I started to read. I only got just a few pages into it. When I got home, my wife said, that Joe Marjan, a youth minister from St. Malachy Church, had called and wanted to know if I wanted to teach catechism. I said, oh, sure. When am I going to find time to teach catechism? No, thanks. 
and I went and sat down. She continued to make dinner. The phone rang, so I went and picked it up, and it was Joe Marjan, and she asked me the same question, and I said, why, yes, Joe, I'd love to, and I hung up, and I looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and she said, where did that come from? I don't know. We had dinner, I went and sat down, and I picked up the book on Mother Cabrini again, and I started to read, and I read in the earliest days, she was a teacher. And then I learned an important lesson. Never ask a saint, know something about a saint you ask to carry your prayer to the Lord. She was a teacher, I'd ask her, carry my prayer to the Lord. She made me a teacher on that night. Well, after that happened, um, and so I, I'm still teaching catechism. It's 24 years now. So I, I went to uh, I went to work. I hired a fellow that I'd known years before. Uh, he came into my office, and as he walked into my office, he saw my San Damiano crucifix. He saw my uh, holy cards taped on the wall. He saw my New American Bible. He saw my catechism of the Catholic Church. He saw some uh, palms on the on the wall over there. All things that you weren't allowed to do in your office, but I just did them anyway. And he saw all that, and he says, gee, I didn't know you were a Catholic. And I was about to say, well, yeah, sure. And then I thought, no, when you knew me, you would not have known I was Catholic. Well, then he proceeded to tell me that he had a friend who does Bible studies with him for incarcerated young men in Detroit, and his, and his friend's moving out of town. Would I be interested? And I'm thinking, I haven't got time for that. But I turned and said, well, yes, I'd love to because Mother Cabrini was controlling my jaw. She was reaching down and making my tongue do the right things. So I joined this incarcerated youth ministry and I'm still there. That's 24 years. So then he also told me about the Curcio movement. So I made a Curcio retreat. And then I became the coordinator for the School of Leaders for 12 years in the Curcio movement in, De in Detroit. And then because I'd been in Curcio, Father Joseph Gambala, our pastor at St. Malachi, wanted to do a Life of the World retreat. And it was similar to Curcio, so he asked me to be on the team. And we did five of these. In the beginning, I was just a team member. Then I became a co-leader, and then I became leader But by the time we got to the fifth one. Then he wanted to do an Alpha, so I became the organizer for the Alpha, and then an Alpha for youth. And for the last five years now, I've been doing these types of programs um, for St. Malachi and for everyone that hears them. Mother Cabrini shook me awake and helped me to, to learn my faith. Thank you, Mother Cabrini. Now, the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart have a, uh, a monastery in Chicago, just very close to that church. They send out a newsletter. Uh, Father Ted Popeless is the uh, editor, and it and they're, they're still doing things all over the world. So let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.